the sheep and the shepherd. For those of you who've been around the church for a while, we have made this metaphor a pretty romantic one, haven't we? Whether it's a Sunday school program like Jesus was a shepherd, a nice one, tall and slim. He loved the sheep so much, he loved them one and all. Or our number one psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The metaphor of the shepherd and his sheep can sound pretty dreamy, can't it? But of course, the context into which Jesus casts this good shepherd discourse is not a particularly wistful one. By way of review, let's take a moment to check in about where we are in John's distinct and sometimes troubling, if not dissatisfying treatment at times of the story of the hope that is Jesus the Christ. After healing the man born blind in chapter 9, Jesus goes on to negotiate controversy about that healing. Reverend Tom preached about that last week. Here, across the first two-thirds of chapter 10, Jesus is interpreting that sign or that miracle as the other gospel writers describe these kinds of acts. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, the one sent to lay down his life for the sheep, to protect them from the robbers and bandits, and grant them abundant life. In verse 19, Jesus again engages in a debate with those around him, this time with the portico of Solomon, the place from which the kings of Israel would render judgment as a backdrop. We don't know much about how much time has elapsed between these controversial conversations, but given the continuity of the shepherd uh, imagery, we might imagine that it's not too much later and that the folk with whom he is in conversation are his usual interlocutors. The conversation initially seems straightforward, even promising as those questioning Jesus ask directly and simply, and finally, the text says, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus doesn't seem to believe their sincerity, though, and he says, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in God's name testify to me, but you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little stuck here. Doesn't this seem like something of a setup? What does Jesus mean that they don't believe because they're not his sheep? That makes it sound like it's not up to them, like they couldn't believe if they wanted to, like those who do believe are just lucky, chosen, if you will, to be Jesus's sheep, and those who don't believe are unlucky, like goats or something. This whole thread makes me kind of hinky. Something seems out of place, not quite right, when anything having to do with God suggests that there are insiders and outsiders. Like, you get to be a sheep and I don't? As theologian David Loos observes, there's something terribly uncomfortable about this whole matter of who believes and who doesn't believe and why. And in fact, this vexing matter shows up across John's gospel and across the ages in the Christian tradition. Arguments that have been used to define who is a believer and who is not, and thus who is in and who is out, have plagued theologians and damaged humanity for all of our history. Yes, 
The traditional theological questions sound like this. What is the nature of belief? How much of our belief is dependent on God's agency and how much of it is up to us? If we have no say in our belief, we're either sheep or we're not, then what responsibility can we bear for that belief? And if it's all up to us, all a matter of will, then given how many poor choices we make, how can we ever be assured we've made a satisfactory choice when it comes to faith? Neither of the two classic systematic theological camps bring much satisfaction to these questions. Calvin's predestination holds that God, in God's infinite wisdom and justice, determines from before the foundations of time who will believe and who will not, and therefore God predetermines the eternal destiny of all. Thick. The other side, represented by Pelagius and Arminius, makes room for the human will, attributing grace to God, but inviting human responsibility for belief and ultimately salvation, or in the language of this reading, abundant or eternal life. But really, who can resolve the tension in these theological arguments, Reverend Tom? Certainly not me, certainly not in a sermon, nor would it seem could centuries of Christian theology. But maybe that's the point. Not to try to resolve the tension, but to stay in the questions. And I would argue, stick with what we can know. One thing we can know is that academic theological arguments do not get us to grace. But an actual relationship with God does. Another thing that we can know is that a genuine encounter with the living Christ leads to love. And a third thing that we can know is that the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives connects us with each other, and we're just better for it. Better humans, better neighbors, better lovers, better community. So if we can live with the tension that comes up for us from Jesus' words in John about the nature of faith, if we can set aside the study of theology on behalf of the practice of theology, then we can seek to know the nature of God. We can do the work to experience a relationship with God, and we can give ourselves over to letting God know us and call us by name, yeah? And we can romance this text about shepherds and sheep. You see, sheep were the staple livestock of Jesus' culture, as common as cats and dogs are today. Shepherds understood the communication style of the sheep in their care. They knew the language and the nature of the herd. Consider these facts about sheep that every shepherd knows and see if you can identify somewhere facts about people. Sheep are gregarious. They will always band together and pretty much stay together when grazing or moving around. It's not because they like each other so much, although they are social animals, but because they find security in numbers. Get one to go and they'll all go is a principle that all shepherds know and practice. You might recognize that principle coming your way from marketers and influencers, investment bankers, politicians, lawyers, Brandon, or preachers. They all use it to their advantage. 
In the sheep herd, separation from the flock causes extreme stress. Sheep communicate that through high-pitched bleeding. In humans, that stress is communicated through the high-pitched meltdown of a toddler when their parent is on the phone, or the high-pitched grown-up cries of loneliness, addiction, depression, and violence. Jesus's miracles and works of healing were evidence that he recognized that pitch and was bringing all the lost and hurting sheep, both Jews and Gentiles, back to safety under his care. When Jesus was asked by those around him whether he was the Messiah, it was a question of belonging and security. The Messiah was to be the one who would bring the whole flock of Israel together and provide protection and victory against the Roman oppressors. Jesus reinterprets their tradition and reminds them that theirs is not an exclusive flock, but rather that there are other sheep that do not belong to this fold, who he longs to bring in as well. Gentiles even, like the Roman soldiers who were currently walking the streets. It was a call to expand the flock as they understood it, to bring more and more people under the protection, grace, and love of the Good Shepherd. Jesus' statement is a cautionary word to those who think they know who does and who does not comprise the sheep of the flock of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't be thinking that our brand is the only brand. The shepherd knows the sheep, and it sounds like Jesus is saying that we might be surprised to discover just how many variations and breeds there are inside the gates. In a culture like ours, where rugged individualism is a high value, the idea of flocking or being herded isn't too appealing. We prefer to see ourselves not as sheep, but as individuals of worth, and not necessarily valued because of our connection to community. But it is closer to the truth to understand that like sheep, we are social animals who need each other, who need to belong, and who herd instinctively. We cannot make it on our own, or at least not as well as we can when we're aligned with a flock of others that provide comfort and security and a shepherd to watch over our well-being. We need others, and we need the Good Shepherd. That's the whole reason for community and the connection of church. Church is a real expression of what it means to be directed, connected, and protected in Christ. Still having trouble with the whole human-sheep connection? Well, consider this important second fact that shepherds know. It turns out that sheep are kind of intelligent. This flies in the face of everything we've been taught about them. In some respects, they, or we, are ovine idiots. They eat too much right down to the root. They'll drink contaminated water, and when they fall, they often can't get up without some shepherd assistance. And the whole herding thing, they tend to follow aimlessly and blindly with no apparent destination in mind. But this is only part of the story. Contrary to conventional wisdom that sheep are stupid animals, sheep rank just below the pig and on par with cattle in the IQ milieu of farm animals. A study at the Brahmin Institute of Cambridge, England showed that sheep have remarkable memories. Being able to pick out a known face in a line of pictures, particularly if that face is associated with a food reward. 
And this is a sign of higher intelligence, according to Dr. Keith Kendrick, one of the authors of the study. Sheep also have keen hearing, which makes it possible for them to discern the voice of their shepherd from among many others. And they will always move toward that voice that they perceive to be a friend, particularly if that friend feeds them. So sheep are not dumb, as we have been led to think, unless, unless they're scared. Dr. Kendrick believes that the sheep's reputation for stupidity comes from the fact that sheep are afraid of just about everything. He says, any animal, including humans, once they're scared, don't tend to show signs of intelligent behavior. Fear causes a flock to disintegrate, and when sheep are driven apart, they're most vulnerable to predators. Jesus' call for others to follow him was literally a way of leading people out of danger. Jesus understood that it was his voice, God's voice, God's authority, to which his sheep would come running no matter how far they had strayed. My sheep listen to my voice, he says. I know them, and they follow me. Thus, the shepherd, you might say, is ovine lingual. He understands the language of the flock. And just in case you've gotten lost in this metaphor, the flock is us. The shepherd understands the language of us. It is the sheep who need to be shepherd lingual. It is we, the sheep, who must learn to know the voice of the shepherd. The people who responded to his message back then and witnessed his miracles of healing, love, and grace knew that it was only through Jesus that they would be spiritually fed and that their lives could be made at peace, both in the present age and in the one to come. Remember that it was his voice that promised I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. So becoming shepherd lingual is pretty simple. Like with any and all relationships, we come to know through practice, spiritual practice in this case. We come to know by spending time with, in prayer and meditation when it comes to our shepherd. And we come to know by investing in the relationship. And thus we come to know the voice, just like a child knows the voice of a parent. Yet sometimes the problem is not that we, the sheep of the pasture, do not recognize the voice of the shepherd. Sometimes the problem is that we recognize it and choose not to listen, yeah? We turn away because we don't like what it is saying, or we listen to the voice cafeteria style, taking what we like and leaving the rest, or we hear the voice through the wrong translation app. We have no problem listening when the voice of the shepherd is offering comfort and reassurance. Remember what I said about romancing this metaphor. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. One of my colleagues said that when it comes to speaking one sentence to someone hanging onto life by a thread in a hospital emergency room at 3 a.m., I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep is unsurpassed. The good shepherd himself makes that word work. He did indeed lay down his life for the world. 
that voice is pretty easy for us to listen to. But when the shepherd calls us to follow, sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death or self-denial or discipline or obedience or self-sacrifice or unconditional love, even of our enemies, then the sheep don't always hear so well. We're scared. And when we're scared like sheep, we do stupid things. We take a wrong turn. We make ill-advised decisions. We become self-destructive or self-absorbed. We let the ego drive the bus. We use things to make ourselves numb. We turn to our own power. My sponsor calls it our little p power rather than a higher power to make a way when there is no way because only God can do that. And sometimes we'll even forsake the shepherd and turn instead to a bogus master who, surprise, turns out to be a wolf in shepherd's clothing. Think bogus masters like social status and economic privilege and power and whiteness, all wolves in shepherd's clothing. It is the good shepherd who makes this promise that is at the heart of this text and indeed the whole gospel. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This word, this promise that God will not abandon us, that Jesus will hold on to us through all things, that through the Holy Spirit, God will never, ever let us go. This is a promise that we all need to hear. Yes, this day and every day. In a world that's increasingly more scattered and scared, our task as Christ's church is to truly be ovine lingual, to constantly and compassionately translate and transmit the voice of the Good Shepherd to all who are lost and hurting and alone. In a world that is increasingly divided and violent and unjust, it's also about following Jesus' example and welcoming everyone into the fold. Even we sheep can understand that each and every one of us and all of God's creation is chosen. Chosen to believe and destined to be beloved. Hear what God said about this through the prophet Isaiah. Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called you by name. You're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it will not be a dead end because I am God, your personal God, the Holy of Israel, your Savior. I paid a huge price for you. All of Egypt with rich, rich Cush and Sheba thrown in. That's how much you mean to me. That's how much I love you. I'll sell off the whole world to get you back. Trade the creation just for you. Church, it's our job to share that good news with the child who's afraid for their safety at home, with a spouse victimized by domestic violence, with the college student who wonders whether there'll be any job after, creation, after graduation, with the person fearful of being stopped by police because of their skin color, with the first responders who never know what will happen when they arrive on the scene, with the mid-career person afraid of losing their career, with the retiree with no idea of what to do absent a career, with the one mired in grief at the loss of a beloved spouse, with the person 
person shattered by the disintegration of a relationship and with each and every one of you. There are so many times when life conspires to make us feel unsafe and unworthy, and it is our job, church, to proclaim in the face of these harsh realities the even greater reality of God's undying, unconditional, and unyielding love. So if you would, please allow me one more word about theology. The great reformer Martin Luther advocated neither predestination nor free will, but rather talked about God's election. The difference for Luther was that election was not concerned with things that God may or may not have done eons ago, but rather election named a present tense reality. In Hebrew, we know the word God's chesed. This is God's immediate and ongoing decision to choose us, to love us, and to save us. And whenever the church proclaims God's promises, Luther believed, God once again arrives on the scene to elect people to abundant life. Beloved, here's the even gooder news about what the good shepherd is saying. No matter how crazy or difficult or stressful or scary your life is today, God chooses you. God calls you by name. God loves you. God accompanies you. And God holds on to you through all of life and even through death into the new life that God offers you and all of us. Let us go from here and elect one another, elect another, and share with them this good, good news. May it be so. Mm -hmm.